Hello and welcome to Tips and Tales, Ski Racing Media's official podcast for the week of March 27th, 2019. I am Sean Higgins, and I am joined today by a very special guest on the phone with me. We are going to have a great discussion about this past season of World Cup racing. You probably know him as the voice of ski racing on NBC Sports, or the guy who gets to ride around Europe on the back of a motorcycle each July for the Tour de France. He also was a former host of this very podcast, the one and only Mr. Steve Perino. Pino, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Uh, I'm, I'm glad that it still exists, uh, on which I can still be a guest. So that's a good thing. <laughs> right on, right on. So we've just finished another World Cup season. We'll have to wait until October to get our ski racing fix once again. How many years on covering World Cup has this been for you? I started with, which was at the time, Ski Racing Magazine, living in Gary Black's basement. Uh, that was 1997 when I was offered an internship. Uh, so, And then the, that same year, actually, I had this funny thing happen with ESPN. Todd Brooker opened up a Wendy's and therefore needed to go to Burger College. And because he went to Burger College, they needed someone to fill in. So they had a little audition and some people threw my name in. And so I got a job with ESPN. They liked me enough to keep me around when Brooker came back. And so from 97, I was both writing for ski racing and covering World Cup um, ever since. That's a long time ago. Yeah, it's a good uh, 22 years there that's impressive <laughs> nice on the math how old were you when i started out i was uh ripe seven years old when you started but obviously soaking it all in yes yeah, soaking it all in obviously right on so world cup finals wrapped up last week it was a, a season for the record books all around we had some amazing performances some uh t- heartfelt retirements across the board kind of looking back at World Cup finals, were there any moments in particular that, that really stood out to you? You know, when you're, you write about the, the records, I mean, we just, every day you had to look at the record book and say, what, what did we miss that Michaela Schiffen's going to break today? Yeah. Which, it got to the point where it was almost, and I said it was, it's, it's numbing. It, you know, it's just hard to put into perspective how good she was. So within that context, one of my favorite moments at the World Cup Finals, it had to be Alice Robinson. Oh, yeah. Right? Because, you know, we saw the records coming. We, you know, like, Schifrin, there's no end to her magic. But to think that there's someone who's 17 years old, because we keep asking ourselves, who's going to stop Michaela Schifrin? Mm-hmm. And then maybe, maybe we got a glimpse of someone that lives up to a level that we haven't actually seen before. Only mm-hmm. one discipline, but that to me was like a moment of magic when Alice Robinson came down at age 17, and yeah, you know, we knew she had speed, but Schiffrin charged that run. I mean, those women were charging that run, and Alice Robinson came down there like she couldn't wait to go a little bit faster on that final pitch, which was, it looked to me terrifying. You were on site, but I, that to me is a run that is going to stick in my mind for a while. Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree. That was an incredible performance and that finishing pitch in Soldeo is it's the real deal. It's steep and the snow's hard. And if that course was maybe four or five gates longer, Alice Robinson very well, very may well have walked away with the win that day. I thought with the way that she was skiing. Yeah. And you know, what was really cool about Alice Robinson. So I went the moment the world cup finals were over. I went out to Squaw Valley, watched my daughter race in a, in a fist race. And it's so Alice Robinson, of course, went to Sugar Bowl for a couple of years. So she is that connection to the next generation. And so when she had that result, it kind of connected all those kids to the World Cup. I mean, I think in some ways what Michaela Schifrin is doing is so superhuman that you, it may just kind of on another planet, out of reach. And Allison Robinson clearly created this connectivity to the highest level of the World Cup. For this like 16, 17, 18 year old group of, of girls that, you know, maybe didn't ski with her, but they knew someone who did. It was a really interesting reaction to her run going to that race. Absolutely. I was actually a, a U14 coach at Squaw Valley when Alice was a U14 at Sugar Bowl. And I remember going to these races and, and watching this girl ski down. She wasn't particularly big. I know that's a 
it's a U14 is an interesting age because a lot of the, the, the fastest kids aren't necessarily the best skiers, but you, you saw her ski and she was beating all the boys and you just kind of thought like, I wonder where this is going to go. And, and we saw that in the, in the GS at finals. So that was definitely a highlight of the week for me as well. Yeah. I mean, it, and it's gotta be, it's, it's impossible. I think to look at someone that's 14 and imagine that they can do that inside of three years. Because I kept hearing people say, oh, we knew she had speed. I'm like, yeah, but did you, were you watching? That wasn't just speed. That was, you know, Michaela Schifrin skiing for some of her BS, best GS. Vloba skiing some of her best GS on a really hard hill. That was more than just some skiing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we, we got a little taste of it throughout the season. She did start in World Cups before finals. And you saw speed in splits for sure. And then I think really what kind of started that that momentum end of the season was her second run at world championships in Ora. She set the fastest time in that second run, went on to win the world junior gold medal and then cap it off with the second place at world cup finals. So she clearly had speed early in the year as well. Yeah. So that was, yeah, that was, that was standout. Um, and of course, you know, there was so many things that Schiffrin did that was standout, but her ability, I think to race at the end of the year, you really got the sense our interviews that we got from you and just talking to Mike Day, her coach, there's really this push to not just win the globe, but to learn how to always race closer to her limit. And mm-hmm. I think it's fair to say that, you know, she did that at the world cup finals. And, and even though the pressure was entirely off at some point towards the end, like mathematically, she'd already wrapped the title because Lova got pushed second. I'm assuming that she knew that that'll free you up, but she's to me, that's been the most impressive thing about her this year is her willingness to push her own limits and race more. And that was cool to see her do that all the way to the end of the season, even though the pressure was off, which you can argue that's almost like turning the the tap off entirely when it comes to Fisher, right? He just, everything was wrapped up, everything was done and he just couldn't seem to find it. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think all the good things you could say about Michaela's management of the end of the season, Hersher was kind of the mirror image of that in how he kind of turned it off at the Kranz Gagora, really. Um, was, I think he was third in the slalom and he wasn't on the podium in the GS and then really kind of lackluster performances at, at World Cup Finals. But, I mean, he's in a position in his career where he's got nothing left to prove, I guess. Yeah, you know, and I've heard his coach, I remember distinctly his coach telling me at the World Championships in 2015 when he was having one of those seasons where things were going to, you know, he was going to win the GS title, the slalom title. He was going to win the overall. If they weren't wrapped up already, it was kind of a foregone conclusion. And he said, you know, the one thing about Hirscher or Marcel, he's like, he doesn't perform very well if there's no pressure. Mm-hmm. That's what they've learned. And so this idea of Hirscher – you know, is he going to retire because there's so much pressure from the Austrians to do, you know, what is already beyond impossible. But without that, he's even worse, which is an interesting, I think, conundrum, but it's proven itself over and over. Yeah. It's interesting how everyone's wired differently, how he needs that competition to uh, perform at his highest level. And and you've, I think you've noticed that throughout, throughout his career. I think my first year going to Kitzbühel, he, I think, was – almost a second and a half out after the first run. And it was some of the gnarliest, iciest slalom conditions I've, I've seen in, in person. And he had all the weight on his shoulders. And that second run was some of the most impressive slalom skiing I think I've ever seen. And to see someone perform like that with all that pressure on him, it just speaks volumes to, to him and his abilities and his, his drive to be a champion. I think it's frightening. Honestly, that what, you know, same scenario for me when I saw him win the 2013 World Championship that were in Schladming and there were 50,000 people. And at that point, the Austrians had not done well in what is their own World Championships. And it came down, I think, the last day to get a gold medal. And you know, all of that pressure, he, I can't, I'm sure he can't even hear his skis underfoot. 50,000 people screaming and he pulls through. And I just, I don't know how you do it in slalom. It's slalom in particular. There's mm-hmm. so many ways to make an error. And I yeah. guess 
even though Hirscher didn't go out in a high note this year, the fact that he just hasn't skied out since he was like two years old. Yeah. It's, it's, it's you're looking back at his GS written slalom record, his consistency with some of those frenzied runs that you were just talking about uh, is stunning. Yeah, absolutely. Slalom is a, a game of 50, 50 plus chances to have a bad day. Yeah, no, I, I'm with that. That is definitely my experience with that particular discipline. Yeah, absolutely. So speaking a little bit about the record books, I know Michaela's season is one that will go down in ski racing history as one of the greatest seasons of all time. And speaking as someone who's been so deeply involved in the sport for, for over two decades now, how do we fit Michaela and Marcel into the greater ski racing history? a lot to cover stop me if i go on too long uh <laughs> but you know with with difference this is an interesting scenario so we are you know you write the tease to the show and then the way the tease was written it said it is the single best season we've ever seen and i had to stop and, and sort of intervene and say you know like i i'm tempted to say that but, yeah, I wasn't there when Jean-Claude Keeley won, I forget what it is, 13 out of 17 races. I, you know, I've seen clips of him skiing. I don't really have a sense of how hard that was to do. Um, you know, there's Rennie Schneider's season where she, you could look at it, she dominated slalom and giant slalom to a greater degree than Schifrin did to win those 14 races. So, you don't want to just say it's an absolute thing, but if I am on the side of Michaela Schifrin, and I, I, I am, I want to say that's the greatest season I can rationally come up with. Mm-hmm. But, you know, 17 races in a year, it's easier to manage. And I think that's what Michaela Schifrin proved to us this year, that maybe if she'd gone into all the races, that she win, you know, the final slalom by 700 to these victories some of which were narrow still happen um so you know i think how she managed herself was amazing i wish the book season was really only 17 races and we'd we'd see a little bit more kind of obvious comparisons from one year to the next but i i do think it was easier for keely to do what he did in that era that's just a little bit of speculation, but you had more time to prepare for all the disciplines. He could be ready for everything. I don't think the attrition rate in, say, slalom was as high as it can be for winners in slalom on the Women's World Cup. So those things put together make me think that better than Keeley. And then there's Schneider. Schneider, she only won in slalom and GF. And she tried Super G, but she wasn't as effective. So if you look at the big picture, you know, the fact that Schifrin won every Super G she started except for the last one is, you know, that's on top of being dominant in Solomon GS. So that, for me, trumps Rainey Schneider's season. And then I think you also have to look at Herman Meyer when he scored 2,000 points in the year 2000. Mm-hmm. Downhill. You know, that was quite dominant. But yeah. You know, like, he definitely had no slalom game. Mm-hmm. You can't say that Schiffrin doesn't have downhill game. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, Schiffrin would skied in all of the disciplines, just sparingly in speed, and came up with not, you know, not 15 wins, not 16, but it was 17. Yeah, absolutely. But she win, like, it was 17 out of 26 starts, and, only, and four other times she was on the podium. Mm-hmm. That winning rate is, to me, pretty stunning. Yeah. The way she got there with being judicious about where she started, I think it also kind of this and said, you know, like, your best skiers are always going to win if you give them enough time to train. Mm-hmm. But, you know, maybe we'd see fewer injuries and all that stuff. But I liked the way she got to 17. Um I think that's part of the sort of – that's the unsung part of the victories this year was how they managed it so well, and she was ready to win every time she was in the game. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we'd be remiss to not mention Tina Maze's 2,400-point season in 2013 as well. That was across all disciplines too, was it not? 
It, it was. And, you know, and that's the, that's the difference. Do we think, what was it? It was 2,413 points. Schifrin was 2,200 in a couple. Yeah. Do we think that Schifrin, with another eight starts, could have found 200 more points? Absolutely. Yeah. You know, lost, but what do we like better? Do we like winning better? Because Maze won 11 times, and then Mo, and then I think was on the podium another 13 times. So it was a split between winning and just being on the podium. And Schiffman was not a split. She won everything she started. And so, yeah, I guess you have to weigh in on what's more impressive, you know, just one's endurance. Like it's a Tour de France. You don't win every stage, but you get to the finish line first. Mm-hmm. Or do you appreciate winning mm-hmm. that day? And, you know, I fall on the side of winning because it's not the Tour de France. Uh, winning is what we're going to remember. And Tina Maze will be remembered, you know, in that season, not for the Globes that she won, but for that 2,400 points, which – to me, it's a little arbitrary. You know, we have different numbers of races every year. Some get canceled. Sometimes they don't. So it's it's kind of, it's not a very consistent benchmark by which to measure a season. As great as it was, not as good as Shipman's. Absolutely, yeah. And I think it, it, kind of watching this unfold firsthand for me this season, I think our, our friend Scott Lyons had a, a really good quote in an article he wrote for ski racing about the the greatest skiers of all time. And he, he said that familiarity sometimes can obscure the truth. And he was talking about how when we see these great skiers like Lindsey Vaughn, like Axel Svindal, like Marcel Hirscher, like Michaela Schifrin achieve these titanic feats on snow in front of us, we have a tendency to compare it a little too much to the things that came before. And I'm thinking in my own experience, I'm too young to have ever seen Ingemar Stenmark ski. So I've only ever seen it on YouTube or a a book on ski technique my dad had when I was growing up. Right, right. And he was just this like mythical figure of the sport for me for so long. And just that that record of 86 and did he win 14 straight giant slalom races or something like that? Yeah. The stand. Yeah. Yeah. And just like thinking of those stats and, and then uh, Michaela comes along and has a season like she had, I think it 100% belongs in the same category as, as the feats of Stenmark and Schneider or, or some of the other greats of, of yesteryear. And it's just kind of, interesting to to see how we see it as it happens in front of us instead of looking back in the history books and remembering it right yes and i ski racing was not terribly available we watched it on wide world sports and you'd see a few runs back during stenmark's era so unless you were on the world cup with him during those years i don't think as an american you could have a sense of his dominance because you didn't see it day in day out the way we get to watch Schifrin. So that's that's more of a, you, you know, you have to ask Mark Giordelli. Mm-hmm. did, in fact, tell me, you know, Stenmark took ski racing to a place where it had not been before. And, you know, he trained through the night because it was always night in Sweden. Um, mm-hmm. But it was, so there was a reverence that came from someone that got to the highest level that helps you second guess yourself. But mm-hmm. again, Stenmark didn't win any speed races. You know, he rarely raced in them. Franny Schneider, again, just they were two trick ponies, if you will. And so I just don't think that's as valuable as what Schifrin did. Mm-hmm. And I also, it's very hard to calibrate the depth of the field. But I would argue that women's giant foam has long been the most competitive discipline, maybe on the World Cup, but certainly on the women's side. And so for her to get that globe in particular, uh, and navigate through, I think at one point last year, we found that 11 people in the top 30 had won a race. Mm-hmm. All, you know, there's a handful that used to dominate in GS, but they were coming back from injury, and then those that are ascending. It's just incredibly deep. And whereas Stenmark was so good so fast, it almost felt like the field wasn't deep just because he started winning GS at 18 years old and kind of never stopped. Yeah. Uh, where Schifrin had to enter an existing field that was better than she was. Absolutely. 
Yeah. Um, so that's another era area where I think Schifrin, you know, she won in women's GF. That's hard. Women's Super G was easy this year. I mean, relatively speaking. I would not call that, you know, the fact that two Super Gs were canceled. Doja is out. Vaughn is semi-injured. I would not call that a hard title to win in the pantheon of titles. Yeah. And I think you saw how much the GS Globe meant to her towards the end of the season, even though she, by all mean, like all intents and purposes, she had it locked up going into finals with, with a 97-point lead. But just when she had it in her hands and to see her get so emotional in the finish, you saw just how much that that title meant to her personally. Yeah. that was Yeah, indeed. I, I didn't see that coming. I mean, how many times have you seen Michaela Schifrin be truly emotional right there in the finish? But it tends to be towards the end of the year, right? It all, she's just so laser focused. And then there's that moment of all of this work. And I think that's the part that would really blow all of us away if we were there day in, day out, watching her do all of that work. But clearly so much more work had been done for that GS title than the Super G title. Mm -hmm. Yes, definitely. The Super G was definitely a pleasant surprise, I would say, for the, the Schifrin camp this year. Yeah. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah. You love it when a globe is a pleasant surprise. Yes. Um, so moving on a little bit to, to talking about Marcel Hersher, he still had nine wins this year, three globes, eight straight overall titles, which is something I never thought I would say, um, <laughs> as well as a half a dozen globes in uh, Slalom and GS for his career. How do you think Hersher fits into this whole puzzle of of, of greatest performances and greatest skiers of all time. I just, you know, you look at, I want to say we looked up one of the great all time GS greats as an example, um, Michael Von Grunigan. And I can remember a decade and a half ago going through his, uh, his stats and his numbers. And I looked back and I just couldn't believe he had gone, it was several years without uh, skiing out of a GS. I saw mm -hmm. him like in the late 20s. And you thought, you know, Von Grunigan obviously won a lot. What was it, 22? I think he was second before Ted went in front of him. But he never skied out. And I thought, oh, that, you know, that, that's one thing about his skiing that probably will never be duplicated. And then Hirscher came along and did just that. And yet his winning rate is so much higher. And he gets, when he gets pressure, he skis at such intensity that I marvel over his ability to never ski out, never. Mm -hmm. And so he, to keep that sort of intensity and focus and that kind of constant reserve for eight years, we have not seen that. That is an unbelievable level to hold. I mean, it's the old cliche. It's, it's, it's one thing to get to the top. It's another thing to stay there and to stay for eight years. And I remember him telling stories about his first World Cup overall title where you know, he'd lost some 14, 15 pounds over the course of the year. He couldn't, for the first two years after winning the World Cup, do his normal, what they wanted to do was go test skis like so many people do because they can get winter conditions at the end of the year. He couldn't move. Like, he just, like, he couldn't do it for two years. Um, so that was the level of intensity that it took for him to get there. And now to see him just kind of hold it, maintain it. And I don't even think anyone makes him nervous, right? It's just complete and total dominance at this point. And, and that's a horrible thing. If you're, if you're Alexi Pantaro, you know, it's like, I'm not going to win the overall because you're sure skis out one day or <laughs> does something wrong. Cause that ain't going to happen. I have mm -hmm. to be beyond perfect and as fast or a little faster than I've ever been. That's very intimidating for any competitor. So I think in some ways the, the eight wins also comes out of a level of intimidation. Just how do you, how do you possibly endeavor to do that? Yeah, I, I agree. There's definitely, there's a, a, just an atmosphere around Hersher wherever he goes in Europe that, that is, it must be intimidating for guys like, uh, Christofferson and, and Pinero, his real two big rivals in that overall race. And I think it speaks to his dominance that 
he's been able to win the these eight overall titles pretty much skiing exclusively slalom and gs it's two events and he skis some combined when he needs some insurance points and i think that's yeah like, yeah yeah and i think you bring up a, a good point sean is that it, it would be nice if the schedule was more even and so we could get a better understanding of just how good these seasons are but the way it's been there's always been three or four for more tech races than there are speed races. So you can't, when was the last time? I think the last time we had a speed skier win the title, speed specific as in not GS, was um, Luke Elfong in 1997. Mm-hmm. A long time ago. Um, you know, I don't think you, you can't. Meyer and Eberharder, when they won, they were skiing, you know, they were winning GSs. So that's yeah, speed it helped them even out the uh, even out the calendar, and the calendar is unfair. I yeah, think. yeah, definitely. So it was also a season of of some big names saying goodbye to the sport with Lindsey Vaughn and Axel Svindal, two of the biggest names in speed skiing over the last ten plus years, both saying goodbye to the sport at World Championships in Ore. Steve, you were in Ore, and you saw both of these runs go down in person. What was that experience like, saying goodbye to Lindsay? I know you've known Lindsay since she was a, a young girl, and what was that like for you? Yeah, I want to say I wasn't quite ready for it. Just, you know, and it's not for me to be ready for it, but I just I knew the retirement was going to happen. I knew that whether it wasn't this year or it was the beginning of next year, we knew it was coming. And then when, when honestly, when the day got there, I was, I was thrown off. I was, yeah. I mean, it was emotional and those things don't have, you know, it's, it's sports, it's ski racing, you know, there's emotional moments. Uh, but this was, this was kind of heavy and it was hard for me to fathom. I mean, I've, I predated her skiing by a couple of years on the, uh, you know, with my work, but whatever, she's been part of it the entire time. And this is someone that just is so much bigger than the sport of skiing. And we owe so much to Lindsay Vaughn for what she's done to put our sport in the public eye. And then there was, it was, you know, it was ending right there that day. Mm-hmm. I remember talking to her dad. My, her dad was he coached me when I was like six years old, so I've known her dad for a long time. And and that's like that's not an emotional guy. I don't think I'm I'm like revealing anything that people don't already know about Alan Kildow. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was super emotional. And I saw that, and I just yeah, it was almost I, I couldn't think. It was it affected me that much. Yeah. And I think just the the build up to the season with her making the announcement that this would be her final year last summer, and then you had the injury to start the year off, another injury to set back her her hopes of getting to that magic number of eighty six, and then making her return in Cortina and it not going her way. We saw those those interviews were were some of the most jarring and and emotional interviews I've certainly been a part of, and just to see her transition from that and to walk away with a bronze medal in her final race was almost more than any of us could have hoped for. I thought. Yeah, it was, you know, particularly with the right, she crashes and just like smokes herself in the super G just, I mean, it's such a hard hit. And so I think for a lot of people who have watched her ski her whole career, there wasn't a, you know, is she going to get a bronze medal? Is she going to go out on a high note? It was genuinely concerned for her safety because she is the least concerned for her safety. Yeah, I'm a little tongue in cheek, right? But um, that she would actually make it to the finish line on on the race day. Just forget the litany of injuries that led up to it. The fact that she actually found the net again in a way that almost looked like they were going to take her down on a sled and then to come back again and, and do what she did. It really did. It was the cherry uh, on top of an era that it was the perfect sign off too. 
It, you know, there was nothing easy about it. It was all grit. It was all just, yeah, her ability to come back from pain and fright. And most speed skiers can't do that. They can't come yeah. back from a heavy crash and then perform the next day. Yeah, I definitely had tingles sitting on my couch watching that race. That was that was something special for sure. And then and talking a little bit about Svindal, Svindal was a little bit more unexpected. I think it was another one of those circumstances where you knew his body was ailing. You knew that retirement was coming, if not this year or the next year. And, and I think I was in Kitzbühel when he did make the announcement. I remember him... Uh, skiing the first training run and then kind of crossing the finish for that first training run, shaking his head and, and then him skipping the next day and, and then announcing that that morning that he was going to be done after Ori was definitely surprised. And then, uh, to see him in, in his last race come down two hundredths from a gold medal and then finish second to his, his good friend and teammate shuttle Yanzrud was another one of those weird moments for me. It was kind of just to watch two, of the greats of the sport uh, on back-to-back days say goodbye in such a way was, was definitely special. Yeah. Just uh, that again, what's the story been of the Norwegians over time? It's, it's what an incredible team culture they have. And it started, you know, the attacking Vikings started back in the nineties. And here you have one of its greatest characters signing off in a way that just couldn't scream team anymore. Uh, you know, you've got Jansrud on top of the podium, constantly gesturing towards Spindal. You know, the, the best of friends on the World Cup get to say goodbye to each other from atop the podium. You know, it almost feels corny. Like if you'd written that script, they'd have sent it back and said, yeah, little sappy, why don't you rewrite it? Give us something more realistic. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, this is, this is too good to be true. And I was so certain that it was not going to happen, right? I mean, I'm, you know, I'm supposed to come out and say, you know, what do I think? And I was talking to the coach and they're like, yeah, he was not skiing good yesterday. Uh, no confidence. Hasn't had much time on snow before the world cup, uh, before the world championships. But what happens, right? The snow starts to fall. The course slows down a little bit. You know, if the tempo was still high, I think both those guys would have had a hard time holding off Paris and some of the guys that have been, uh, you know, and, and Foyt's, but it's slowed down a little bit and they are just kind of masters of adaptation. Um, and they just, nothing beautiful about the way Fendal skied, but it was right. He just fought to the very end. And the fact that he might've got a little weather window. Thank God for mother nature. Yeah. Love her. Yeah. And I thought it was, it was interesting to me in one of his post-race press conferences, he talked about nerves and, how I mean, he's been at it for so long, and and you do have to have steely nerves to to ski World Cup downhill. Make make no doubt about that. And he talked about how the, just the atmosphere. He was he was unusually nervous for him, is what he said before the race in the downhill, just because he knew like throughout his whole career, he's like, oh, if today doesn't go my way, I'll have the next race. And all he could think about was there is no next race after this. Like, so I have to, I have to go out there and do this. And he'd never put himself in a position like that before in his career. So to, to see him have those nerves and then deliver like he did, what just kind of speaks to, to his nature as a champion as well. Right. Yeah. And it was, you know, Vaughn said the same thing. I remember watching her during inspections. She seemed so light and loose. And I think I said it on the air, you know, she's, it's like her backyard, super comfortable. She came down and she said, I've been that nervous in a long time. But yeah, they know they're, they, right? They certainly yeah. understand opportunities. And I guess this being their last after, you know, better than a decade and a half, um, only they can understand what the meaning of a final race must have. Yeah, definitely. We'll, we'll miss them for sure. Won't be the same. World Cup won't be the same without those two. No, it'll be, it will be different, have to be different, um, but it won't be the same. All right. Is there any other kind of memorable moments that, that stick out to you of the season? Um, you go, and I will come off of you, Sean. All right. Some of the, what were some of the more memorable moments for you? 
I think definitely one of the stories that I really followed all season was the the Stefan Luitz saga of winning the Beaver Creek GS and and really um, with his backstory of injuries and, and bad luck to finally break through and, and win a World Cup giant slalom in front of Hersher when Hersher was undoubtedly the, the most dominant GS skier in the world. And then to have the news break later that week that he was going to be disqualified for a, a, a fist rule violation and then have all these decisions made and then he'll, he's appealing these decisions. And uh, then to have the news break the other week that he wins his appeal and he is the eventual winner of the Beaver Creek Giant Slalom was just, man, that roller coaster of emotion. I, I can't imagine what he went through this season. And, uh, man. What was your gut reaction when we got the news? Supplemental oxygen, photographs were taken. They've seen it. It's sort of beyond the point of protesting, if this were, say, a straddle. Uh, what was your gut reaction? My gut reaction was if this happened in plain sight in team hospitality and people took pictures of it, why was this not raised on race day? And why did it come out, what was it, three or four days later, midweek, the next week? I, and I thought it was, all I know, it was well after the, you know, it's what, 15 minutes after the conclusion of a race that you have your opportunity to protest. Um, and it certainly was beyond that point. Yeah. Yeah. And it was an interesting because the, the the rules are are written. It 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 was confusing to follow because the rule that he violated is in the fist doping guidebook, but it's not a doping violation per se. Yeah. So it was a rules violation, and I think that was the technicality where he won his appeal. Um, was that the WADA guidelines that don't ban supplemental oxygen supersede the fist rules? Right. And I think, was it, you may have said that the the original writing of the rule was due to Nordic and cross country. That, that was what I it was like. like a, it was like a PR thing for, for FIS when the whole Russian doping scandal broke. They just didn't like the, the optics of athletes hooked up to oxygen tanks. Right. Right. And it was because of what was in those oxygen tanks during the 2014 Winter Olympics, you know, you had these tents that, you know, as they, I was not at the Nordic venue, I couldn't tell you, but it just sounded like, you know, there were these laboratories that were out in the field of play. And then ultimately, right, the Russians are busted. And so anything that looks like that, just there's that specter of cheating uh, surrounded by it. But then there's the comical part of if you go to, and they have them in Beaver Creek, right? You go to the spa. You go to the oxygen thing. You pull up to the oxygen bar. That's cool. That's not a violation. Just as long as nobody sees you do it. And so there's something ridiculous about the rule itself. Um, but, again, it's about optics. A rule is a rule. Uh, and I think there should have been some kind of – maybe it's a fine. You know, maybe it's when you straddle and you keep skiing, it's a fine. It's not good for the look of the sport. But to take away the victory – and I, and and I also have asked people that understand the value of supplemental oxygen. And when you're taking repeated runs at altitude and jump in, if you already know all this, but then it helps. Then yeah. you cover a little more quickly when the intervals between run one, two, three, and four, you know, are inside of five minutes. But if, when you have a three-hour interval between your first run and your second run. There is no medicinal value to it whatsoever. And it just happened to be that the Germans had their oxygen in the Finnish bag or whatever it was. And rather reflectively, he took it. And that's kind of what they do. Didn't know the rule, even though really there's not much to it. It's more like kind of psychosomatic that it worked in training. So I'll work, you know, we're still in Beaver Creek. So I'll race day. Yeah. There's nothing that says he gained an advantage from it. Yeah, that was my kind of gut feeling too. Like, even though there may have been no medical benefit for him doing this, there could be a definite placebo effect of, hey, I need this to get through a full training day of, of six to 10 runs. And then, I mean, Beaver Creek's high, and that's one of the longer GSs on tour. Yeah. And just to have 
that little bit of mental edge knowing like, oh, I took my oxygen between rounds. I'm going to be good for the final 10 gates of the course versus, oh, I didn't take my, my oxygen. I'm screwed. <laughs> right, right, right. But then you have to factor in that, you know, in Beaver Creek, they cheer louder for the Americans than they do for Stefan Lewitz. <laughs> you know, what is, the, what is the psychosomatic effect of that? Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I hear you. That's, that's nuanced. But I mean, again, I'm, 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 think they have done the right thing or the right thing has been done by giving him back the victory yeah uh, again i think he earned the victory did he earn some sort of infraction or fine too yes i think so mm -hmm. yeah and another story that really uh, was cool to see was was clement noel challenge in slalom and and really beat hersher straight up in both in Wengen and in Kitzbühel and uh, pulling out a, an amazing win at World Cup Finals. And he's another young guy. He's only 21. And it's it's really exciting to see a new generation kind of come through in the tech events for men right now. Yeah. I think with the depth of the Swiss slalom team, I don't think they're as fast as Clement Noel in the best day um, or Hirscher. And I do think that Christofferson was a little off this year. But they, they, they make sure that if anyone makes a mistake, they're going to win. They're going to steal spots on the podium. But Clement Noel, I, I look at his skiing over and over and over, and I, I almost don't get it. I, he is so quick on and off his edges. And, I, you know, it's hard to say that in the context of Hirscher, as if Hirscher's not quick, right? Yeah. Uh, but there's something – effortless about this six foot three inch frame there's less of these severe angles you, you'll come down a course inspecting and think oh it's got a lot of swing and then he comes down and it almost looks like there aren't any turns in the course it's not, i just really need to spend more time but whatever he's doing you know it's almost effortless mm -hmm. and i think that at age 22 my understanding talking to the people that sort of are inside that camp He's a super fit kid, but he's certainly not at his peak strength or anywhere close to it. Yeah, he's he's definitely yeah, you know, he's definitely not a big guy. He's roughly six feet tall, and he's he's not. I think he's six three. I think he's super tall, but he's skinny. Yeah, he's not not a a filled out young man quite yet. Yeah, and that I I I said, and then I was thinking to myself, like, how could I possibly know that? Um, but when I watched his slalom skiing this year, it just, it looks to me that it was every bit as fast as any of the high level slalom runs that Hirscher has put out this year. That, that was sort of a, a gut reaction. And I think the one issue for, uh, Clement Noel to me is he, is he kind of condition specific at this point in his career. I mean, he needs really hard surface to push off of. Yeah. Yeah. And I think Hersher himself at Kitzbühel called Noel the future of slalom. Yeah. He's good at that. He's, he's, yeah. Every time he can, like, deflect a little attention somewhere else. Yeah. <laughs> did he not also do that to Odermott? Odermott, when Odermott did so well in in, uh, in Adelboden. Yeah. That guy's the future of skiing right there. Yeah, yeah. He'll have him. Like, in, like slapping a stake on the back of, you know, some animal and letting the lines out. Um, were there any big surprises for you this season? Things you didn't expect to happen? Uh, I, you know, <laughs> Alice Robinson comes to mind. Um, it, you know, women's speed is not in a very acute way, but it, you know, I wouldn't say that kind of at any one moment that blew me away, but it's restructuring. And so I'm very curious to see whether or not, uh, when Goja comes back next year, whether she will go back immediately to dominating uh, because, you know, the ones that were winning this year, Siebenhofer, Fischbacher, they didn't, the, the path was pretty well cleared for them. They didn't have the best of the best they were up against and half of the depth was missing because of injury as well. So, um, yeah, I, I yep. guess women's speed in a way was, it was curious to me. Mm -hmm. I didn't know what I was seeing. Yeah, I think it was interesting because you had the the two most dominant women speed skiers in past seasons with Goja and Vaughn both absent, 
and then you had Schifrin coming in in Super G all of a sudden and really in downhill it was the Austrian women who kind of picked up that slack and I think they were on every World Cup podium I'm hesitant to to say that out loud but I believe it was close to every World Cup downhill podium this year had an Austrian woman on it yeah yeah and that and that that itself is amazing because you Cornelia Hutter and I know we made a big deal out of no medals at the world championships for the Austrian women but they were also missing their slalom bronze medalist Gallhuber, bronze or silver. Uh, there was no Anna Weit. There was no Cornelia. There was a, a hobbled Cornelia Hutter. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to think. There was you know, Stephanie Bruner was hurt. Yeah, Bruner. Like those are all World Cup winners. So like they were racing in a sense with their B team. Yeah, Stephanie Fischbacher. They are racing, with... <laughs> and they're still doing what they did. Um, but it didn't surprise me that much that they didn't get a medal at the world championships just because, you know, the ones that were doing the winning, they weren't like seasoned veterans at a championship event either. Yeah. I mean, I guess I want to know what you've learned on the ground about say Clement Noel. You know, if we're looking at years that can, can upset the order next year and the order is pretty well established. McKay Schifrin is the best in almost every discipline and Hirscher is the best in Slalom and GS. Yeah. Um, apart from them stepping down altogether or stepping down their level, who do you think uh, has the potential to upset things? Well, I think watching Clement Noel ski this year, he's one level-headed guy. I mean, he, he, was very even keeled all season. You saw, I mean, he went out in, in Schladming, which I think was a disappointment for him, but, uh, hearing his post race or post run interviews, he was just kind of, Hey, no big deal. Like I'll get him next time. And, and I think especially in a discipline like slalom where it can, when it slalom's going your way, it's going great. But when it's not going your way, it can be one of the most frustrating things in the world of ski racing as I think, uh, Henrik Christofferson learned a little bit this year and to see someone who's so young and so level-headed with, with his ability and knows what he needs to do to perform on race day is, is something that bodes incredibly well for the future for him. And then, obviously, Swiss men, you have you have Daniel Yule and, and Ramon Zenhuizen. Zenhuizen is one of the most interesting guys to watch ski, I think, just because he's so big. And I, I said this on, a, on an episode the other week, but I think he... he, he uses his length to his advantage better than any other tall guy in the world cup i think just keeping that center of mass moving down the fall line better than anyone else and i think you saw that in kranz gagora this year especially in his second run where the course was deteriorating he was sticking his foot in the rut but he kept his chest basically in the corridor between the gates his entire run and and he was untouchable so it'll be really interesting to see some of these younger guys uh, and then just youth in men's GS, like men's GS was some of the most exciting racing all year. I thought, yeah. Uh, and then especially towards the end of the year, having Odermott get on the podium twice, uh, Rasmus Windingstad, uh, get on the podium in Kranzgegor as well. Just, and to see those younger guys really starting to, to carve out their spot on the world cup. Now it's, it bodes well for the future of, of men's technical skiing, I think. Yeah. And then obviously watching uh, Pentaro rebound in slalom. Mm-hmm. That was, you know, if you could keep, and that's the trick up against Pierscher, if you could keep his GS where it was, it, which I think at its best is lights out fast. I don't think it's the kind of speed that Hirscher can easily dominate. Um, and yet with his slalom this year, that was, to me, I was thinking, okay, can he win the overall? You know, he's got the tools. He has to add a level of perfection that he's never experienced in his career, but he's got yeah. it. So, yeah, I think uh, no, it'll be harder for Hirscher next year. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. If Hirscher skis next year, we still don't know that yet, Steve. Yeah, we don't. We got ahead of ourselves there, didn't we? Yeah. Amazing to think, you know, just the, con- the contrast between Vaughn, who really just, you know, it's that skidding sideways into her grave because there was just nothing left in the corpse. It's kind of how she went out. Yeah, and told the tale of her whole career, just grit and 
skiing when others would be inside licking their wounds. It's just that, you know, that's her legacy. And then here she was one of no injuries for the most part, mm -hmm. uh, just pure perfection and very likely will, you know, if he doesn't retire, if it's indeed now or next following year, it's not hard to imagine that he will be pretty close to the top of his form. And I can't think, you know, for sure, no ski racer, maybe Keeley, went out at that high level. Mm -hmm. Maybe Pierman Zubergen. He was 27 when he retired. Is that correct? Uh, that could be. What, was he winning everything in his 27th year? I, I don't actually know the answer to that. Yeah. It's crazy to think that Marcel Hirscher is at 29 years old, has eight World Cup titles. Yeah. And might be retiring before he turns 30. Right. But, uh, that is yet to be seen. He said he said that it's a it's going to be a pure feeling decision for him that he wasn't going to put a set date on his retirement and it was going to be one of those things where if he just doesn't feel it anymore then he's going to be done. So TBD on Marcel Hirscher. Gotcha. He had a birthday March 2nd. Ah. Now 30. But he's only skied a week into his 30s. Um but uh yeah. Now, he's not one to – I believe the Austrian media is still trying to find out the name of his son. I don't believe that's known. So this man knows how to keep a secret. Let's put it that yeah. way. That's that's very true. <laughs> you know his name? I don't know his name. Case in point. I know his his wife and did not make a single appearance on the World Cup this year, so they're being very private. Right. She didn't want the kid leaking the name. Yeah, yeah. Felix brought his uh, daughter to Kitzbühel this year. She was walking around the mix zone. Huh. World Cup has age. Yeah. Since my start. Yeah. yeah. There are yeah, a lot more families running around <laughs> in the World Cup. Definitely. All right. Well, thank you so much, Steve. That was a, a very, very uh, enlightening conversation. Thank you, thank you so much again for, for coming on the show. We'd uh, love to have you back sometime. I love it. Tips and Tales lives on. Sean, pleasure to uh, to join you. And that is our show for this week. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed that discussion. We certainly enjoyed having it, and we'll talk to you all next Wednesday.